0: Good morning. I am very grateful for Stephen and Ruth Dill, somewhere over here. Thankful for both of you and your history and the history of this of these Dill lectures. Thankful for the whole committee, Alan Oakes and others who were kind to invite me to come. I'm blessed on an occasion. Like this. Honored to be here at Dolphin Way United Methodist Church. And thanks to your pastor, Dr. Robin Sims, and your team. I want to sum up what I want to say during these Dill lectures with one sentence. So you only have to remember one thing, we'll do it right now. One sentence. What is at stake in America right now is the soul of the nation and the integrity of faith. What's at stake this morning as we gather here for these days is the soul of this nation and the integrity of our faith. So we'll unpack that over these next couple of days. First, I want to change the title of the sermon. We will deal with the 25th chapter of Matthew, but I want to change the title to this. Do Christians believe in Jesus Christ? Say it again. Do we Christians today believe in Jesus Christ and what does that mean? I was struck by the beginning of your service where, in, at the beginning, you read the Apostles' Creed, Reverend Sheila Bates read that for us. Very fitting for this morning's sermon. Because it begins I believe in God the Father. Almighty maker of heaven and earth And in Jesus Christ his only son Our Lord The world wants to know If we really believe that I was struck by the Did you see the flickering of the light up here? That's really quite an honest statement I think About where we are sometimes as Christians Our light We are called now Jesus tells us to be the light of the world. He is our light, and we are to be the light of the world. But you know, today, sometimes, people see our light flickering. So a good way to begin our service. I grew up in the evangelical Christian tradition. There is a word that strikes all kinds of things in your heart and soul. But in my tradition, we always, always, always talked about our conversions. So I'll start with mine, since we don't know each other well. I was six years old. My parents started that little Plymouth Brethren Evangelical Church, and I was the firstborn son. Pressure's on already. And I was six, and my parents made me sit in the front row on a Sunday night when a revival preacher had come to preach the gospel because... Well, you know, the closer you are to a sermon, the more impact it will have on your life. <laughs> right? So I was sitting up there, and all of the unsaved kids had to sit in the front row. And I was at six. My parents were worried. I was getting up in years. I was six. And still an unsaved kid. So I had to sit in the front row, and the preacher was just everything he was Advertised to be. He was fiery. He was powerful. He was scary. And he pointed it, felt to me like right at me. And he said, Excuse me, I'll act like you or me. Don't take it personally. He said, If Jesus came back tonight, your mommy and daddy would be taken to heaven, and you would be left all by yourself. It got my attention. I realized at six, I'd have a five-year-old sister to support, (laughs) so I had to get this thing fixed. I went to my mom, who really was good at fixing stuff. She told me not about God's wrath, but about God's love for me. God wanted me to be a child of God. Sounded good, and I signed up at six. Of course, my church didn't believe in infant baptism, just adult baptism, so they baptized me at eight. As an adult, that was my first conversion. Evangelicals often have many over the course of our lives. My second one was actually the one that changed my life more dramatically. So I'm in Detroit, Michigan, my hometown, get to be 15 or 16, and I start to listen to my world, hear the news, read the papers. Pay attention to conversations, and something very big seemed very wrong in my head, in my heart. I had learned to sing songs like "Jesus loves little children." All the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. I could sing that song, but I listened to my city. And I looked around, my country. And something seemed very big and very wrong. So I began to ask questions They were not welcome in my white church, white school, and white neighborhood. Except the only honest answer I got was, son, if you keep asking those kinds of questions, you will get into a lot of trouble. And that proved to be true. I took my questions into the city of Detroit and I met the black churches who took me in and listened to my questions. I'd never heard of them before. I took jobs alongside young men, same age as me, I'm making money for college and they're supporting their families. And the more I worked alongside them and listened to them, I realized that we had both, we'd all been raised in Detroit, but we had grown up in different countries. I came home with my new answers to the questions that I hadn't heard answered before by the way let me just say to young young people trust your questions follow them to wherever they lead you it's our pilgrimage of faith finally helps to understand what it means to follow jesus so an elder one night took me aside he knew i had to be straightened out and so he took me aside and he said jim You have to understand, Christianity has nothing to do with racism. That's political, he said. Our faith is personal. That's political. Our faith is personal. So here I am, a 15-year-old kid, and the thing that is really tearing me up and really deeply... Confusing me has nothing to do with my faith, he said. So I said, I then want nothing to do with it either. And I left. My second conversion took me out of the churches. I didn't have words back then for this moment with the elder, but, but I did later, and these words would be these God is personal. This God knows everything about every one of us in this beautiful church and wants a relationship with us anyway. (laughs) God is personal, but never private. Never private. There is no private faith. There is a personal faith that must become public in our lives, our communities, our city, our nation. And our world. So I left my church, and they were, I'll be honest, happy to see me go. And I joined the student movements of my time. And I'm—I uh, recall a, a beautiful, funny piece of graffiti on the Lower East Side of New York. Some of you might have heard the name Dorothy Day, this wonderful Catholic woman who began the Catholic worker movement now is being thought to be perhaps one of the next saints. She was an elder for me when I was just starting and had come back to my faith and she was just going out as I was coming in. But there was this building next to her Catholic worker house, Lower East Side. It had this graffiti up there and it talked about a question a reporter asked Mahatma Gandhi. And it said this, reporter, Mr. Gandhi, What do you think of Western civilization? Gandhi, I think it would be a good idea. (laughs) So I often wonder myself today what many young people of many faiths, or many even know religion at all, would be their question. I think it might be something like this. Reporter. What do you think of Christians as followers of Jesus? Millennial? I think that would be a really good idea for them to try. Luke says in his Gospel, 6th chapter, you can't keep invoking Jesus while ignoring what he actually says. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, says Luke? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things I tell you? Do Well, we accept this and we look the other way from that and we don't stand up to these things. But you are my personal Lord and Savior. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And do not the things that I say. So in those movements that I was in as a young man, I learned that I wanted to change the world. I I, I just, in movements fighting a war, poverty and racism, I felt this is what I'm supposed to do. But I I didn't have an adequate foundation for any of that, really. And I actually didn't like the direction that some were going in. I didn't find uh, Che Guevara... Ho Chi Minh and Karl Marx compelling. (laughs) So while I'd been kicked out of my church, I could never quite get shed of Jesus. And so after we had the big student strike in 1970 and shut down all universities, I decided to go back and look one more time at Jesus. And the text we have today became my conversion text. This text brought me back to Jesus Christ. It's a text that could, I believe, overcome all of our terrible polarizations. We live in such a polarized nation. We are a tribal nation. I live in Washington, D.C., and whenever I I, uh, come out and I'm going to be in Mobile and Milwaukee and Akron, Ohio in the next week. And I often have people say, thank you for flying down and not just flying over. (laughs) We have polarized different worlds in our nation. I believe that this text, what Jesus said, could help us. This is, I believe, the text that changed my life is Jesus final test of discipleship. It was the last teaching he gave before going to the city in Jerusalem to be crucified, killed and rise again. This was a judgmental text as you heard. Tough words there. Jesus is known not to be so judgmental. But on this one he he really kind of is. And The best commentary, I read all the commentaries on this text, the best one comes from a woman named Mary Glover from the neighborhood we began in Washington, D.C., and we had this um, food line every Saturday morning. This is 20 blocks from the White House, and there's so many people hungry who need a bag of groceries, we just began to pass out bags of groceries. Very simple, not very dramatic or transformational, we just this Saturday morning, but passed out these food that we found for people. And Mary Glover, I would always get home on Saturday morning just just to be there mostly just to hear Mary Glover pray. She was our best prayer. (laughs) She's one of those Pentecostal ladies who prayed like she knew to whom she was talking. (laughs) And she said, Lord, thank you for waking me up. my, 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 My room was it was not my tomb in my bed. It was not my cooling board. Thank you, Lord, for waking me up. And she prayed this. Lord, we know that you'll be coming through this line today. Long line of people outside. We all packed the food together and then Mary prayed. We know you'll be coming through this line today. So, Lord, help us to treat you well. Help us to treat you well. This text in the 25th chapter of Matthew is what I call the it was me test. It was me, I was hungry, I was thirsty, I was naked, I was a stranger, I was sick, I was in prison, and it was me. And the people say as we heard read, Lord, we didn't know it was you. Had we known it was you, we would have done something. Had we known it was you, we would have at least formed the social action committee. (laughs) Had we known it was you. And then Jesus says, as you have done it or not done it, to one of, he said, the least of these, who are my family, is what you read. As you have done it or not done it to them, you have done it or not done it to me matthew twenty five this is what you might call the great gospel reversal in this nation and in most of our communities and our churches, uh, it is indeed the people at the top who are the most important and most influential and most listened to all the time Jesus is saying. No. He's actually saying, knowing we are told all day in every way that the people at the top matter the most, Jesus says, we will find him at the bottom. That's what he says. That's in the text. That was the final test, I would call it, of our discipleship. Everything about we say about our faith is tested by how we treat those who are the most vulnerable. And both political sides pick who they think is the most vulnerable while ignoring many of the others. This text, I think, could bring us together. There are now amazing stories around the country. I was on one day in Morning Joe with Joe Scarborough and he said, you know, Jim, there's a bunch of these, These, they're kind of like Matthew 25 Christians. <laughs> they're coming out all over the country, and they are indeed. In the last couple of years, now there is, there is a Matthew 25 movement called that by Christians across all kinds of boundaries who signed a, a commitment just saying, I will I will serve and protect the most vulnerable in Jesus' name. Southern California, the Mateo 25 movement, led by young Hispanic, black, and white evangelicals from Fuller Seminary, the largest evangelical seminary in the country, just organized around a Pentecostal pastor who is undocumented because he came as a teenager, but he's lived here for decades serving the community. And for the first time, he was detained and threatened with deportation away from his kids, his wife, kids, family, and church. And it was a done deal until Matthew 25, Mateo 25 organized all over Los Angeles. And the president of Fuller Seminary went to see ICE and the head of the Assemblies of God Church, who was a white head, went to see the White House. And they protected Noe, Pastor Noi Carios all over the country. People citing a text, not a political ideology, are acting to protect the most vulnerable. It's becoming a movement. Matthew 25 was a text Coming a movement as people apply, Matthew 25. Even in Washington, we have this wonderful collection of people that really are bipartisan, whose constituencies vote different ways all the time. They include the National Association of Evangelicals and the National Council of Churches. The U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops the Salvation Army, almost every denomination, including yours, has joined the circle of protection. And in response to policy proposals in the last two years, here's what they said together. God instructs us to protect the poor and vulnerable. Jesus tells us to serve and defend the least of these. The prophets remind us that how we treat the most marginal and vulnerable among us is the test of a nation's righteousness. All the prophets say that. It's not your political power, your GNP, or your culture being the admiration of the world. No, it's how you treat the most vulnerable. It is said to rulers, kings, and princes, that is the test of your righteousness. These policies and programs, and it says, we, for the poor, hungry, weak, and sick, and, and vulnerable, uh, are, are disproportionately hurting the most vulnerable. So we begin our conversation, in Washington, by saying not what the Democrats say, Republicans say, White House, Congress. Senate or the House, we talk to them all and we say, Jesus said. Jesus said. Jesus said. How we treat the most vulnerable is in fact how we treat Christ himself. So, Jesus said, I was sick and you visited me. So cutting... Rationing, ending health guarantees for the poorest and sickest people is a moral choice. Jesus said, I was hungry and you gave me no food. So cutting meals on wheels and wick and snap and things that, you know, food stamps, this is always, I find this funny. A pastor once asked me, you know, that food stamps thing, I'm worried about, about um, dependency." Uh, I said, what do you mean? Well, these people, they all get these, these, these nutrition food, food stamps, and they don't work. I said, did you know that most of the recipients of food stamps work full time? Don't make enough money to feed their families. He says, oh, you should get that out. <laughs> so I'm helping get it out. These are not just political issues. They relate to what we say. We believe in that creed but whether or not we're followers of Jesus. And we say to our members of Congress, budgets. Budgets are moral documents. For a family, for a church, for a city. I think I'm going to meet the mayor tomorrow. Because they describe what our priorities are. Who's important, what's important. Who's not important, what's not important. What's important to us? you need to hear from us. Well, I understand all the politics, but you know, Jesus said, Jesus said, Jesus said. Mary Glover in my neighborhood, who's passed now, she was not a theologian, a formal biblical commentator. She, she worked at a little daycare center as the cook and. Uh, uh, she had no formal education, but she's one of the people that, you know, you know these people, they, they're like the glue that hold neighborhoods together. They're like the glue that makes sure everyone's taken care of. And she was my elder, and she knew it, <laughs> and she acted like and She told me when I was getting stuff wrong, and she was always right. And she had the best commentary ever on the text that changed my life. And that prayer kept me going week after week after week. She'd be happy to see Matthew 25 coming back, rising up, even there being named a Matthew 25 movement, a Matthew 25 pledge. If you want to learn more about that, you can find that on our website, sojo.net. It's easy to find all these stories. But no matter what our politics were, she would always say, Lord... Inner prayer, we know you'll be coming through this line today. So Lord, help us to treat you well. What if we focused on the most vulnerable as he told us to do? How could that cross our political boundaries? How could that include all of the vulnerable? Yes, the unborn too, and all those who are born and want people to be not just pro-birth, but for all of their lives. How can we do that together, challenging, disrupting, all the political polarization? How could we be consistent when Jesus said, how you treat them? It's literally how much you love and care and believe in me. So I'm saying this morning and in the days I'm here, very simple message it's time for Christians to reclaim Jesus Jesus has been stolen silenced sabotaged politicized used and abused Jesus needs to be reclaimed and Jesus is worth Reclaiming. We won't overcome the political polarization by politics, even by education, as important as that is. We'll overcome all these polarizations by believing in that creed we heard read, read this morning, and by doing the things he told us to do, Lord. We know you'll be coming through the line today. So Lord, help us to treat you well. Amen.